Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. David, for those of you that don't know me, but we're going to read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Well, amen. Some powerful words from scripture this morning. I want to say a joyful springtime good morning to you guys do you know that it's the first day of spring yes it's my favorite time of year springtime Uh, my name is Chris Clark I'm the worship pastor here and I have the privilege of preaching from God's word again this morning so welcome welcome and let's dig in so we have been walking through the book of Philippians here for the last few weeks right And one thing that we cannot avoid in this study is this theme of joy. It's why we named it Road to Joy. This joy is a major theme, and Paul keeps it in front of his readers. And so uh, some of you may have returned from a spring break trip. Uh, Maybe some of you are still traveling. Maybe you're watching online. Uh, But I think springtime and spring break trips, this just signifies our pursuit of joy, doesn't it? We travel to the mountains to get that one last uh, run on the slopes. We maybe travel to a beach to try to soak up the rays before it gets too hot, right? It's this really happy time of just, man, the sun's out. Let's go find some joy, right? I love that about spring. Maybe you're like my family. We rarely travel during spring. uh, But something definitely shifts in my heart and in our household during springtime. Uh, We can feel it. It's a transition season, isn't it? Fall and spring are the best, in my opinion, because they're transition seasons. Uh, summer's too hot, winter's too cold. I, I'll just, that's my opinion. Uh, but spring and fall, man, those are the sweet spots. And I love springtime because I think it's nature's way of describing joy. I really do. Think about it. Color begins to burst forth, right? 
So the dusty browns of autumn and wintertime turn into vibrant greens and flowers begin to emerge and trees begin to bud and we see this new life springing up everywhere and you can't help but smile. You can't help but feel that as you go out in public when it's springtime. Seeds that were dormant begin to spring up. I love it. It's a season that speaks loudly of hope and a new day bursting forth wherever you look. Well, let's look at our text this morning. Joy is mentioned by, by Paul four times in chapter one. So just a brief overview uh, of, of where Paul has been coming from on joy. And then we'll, we'll go to our chapter two this morning. So Paul starts off in chapter one. I thank God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with what joy. So he kicks off his letter from prison making sure that the Philippians, the people he's writing to, know that he's happily praying for them. Is that absurd to you at all? It is to me. I'm I'm like, how do you joyfully pray when you're in prison, right? My letter uh, to you guys might look something like this. Hey, Redemption Church, I'm in prison. Please send help. Get me out of here. This is not a good thing. I'm not happy right now. But this is a different kind of prayer, right? Paul's like, he just wants to make sure they know he's happily praying for them. What in the world, right? And then later on in chapter one, Paul explains how he ended up in prison. There were disagreements about how Christ was being preached. And his defense of the gospel, his stance, ended him up in prison. And yet here he is again, nonetheless saying, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice from prison. No mention of injustice here. No mention of being wrongly accused or wrongly imprisoned. It just seems that joy is what he's hanging on to. It's deeper than his circumstances. And in case the reader doesn't catch it, he says it twice there. He says, yes, I will rejoice. What on earth is Paul tapping into, right? This is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Then in verses uh, 19 through 25, Paul explains that whether he lives or dies, it's a win-win. Can you say that? Whether you live or die, it's a win-win situation. That's what Paul's tapping into. He says, if I die, it's great. I get to go be with Jesus, forever delivered from sin and death. But if I live, I get to go on proclaiming Christ who rescues others to that same glory. And so he says, that's actually the better thing. I want to stay put because it means that others will hear about Christ. And so Paul concludes that the more joyful thing to do is to see that more people experience joy, to go on living. Living for him is not about self-preservation. It's about furthering the progress of joy in others. Paul wants to give away his joy, right? Pretty powerful stuff there. Well, we're not quite there, are we? Uh, So if we look at uh, Webster's dictionary definition of joy, let's look at this. Joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Another word for it is delight. The expression or exhibition of such emotion. Another word, gaiety. Or maybe a state of happiness or felicity. So there's this emotion, this delight, this gaiety, this bliss, this happiness that is sparked or evoked by something, some kind of good fortune, some kind of uh, prospect of good news, something that you hope you might possess, right? 
And I, I don't know about you, but when I read Paul's letters, I, I sometimes, I, w- I would doubt what he's talking about. I doubt, like, how can you be talking about joy so much? Is this real? Is this really authentic, Paul? Is this just like self-talk? You mention joy enough and you will have joy? Do you guys ever feel like that? Let's figure out what Paul's tapping into here. We're not quite there yet, right? Surely Paul wouldn't say that what he wanted most is to be in prison for his faith. So we still have to answer this question, where's Paul's joy really coming from? Is he just convincing himself? As I've climbed into my 40s, something I have come to learn uh, is that you cannot possess what you don't have. I think Jeff mentioned this a few weeks ago. You cannot You cannot give away, sorry, what you don't possess. You cannot give away what you don't have. It's just, uh, you you can go along for a while faking it, but eventually the bottom will fall out, right? And you realize you never really had that thing. You can't give away joy unless you have it. And so Paul's seeming to give away joy, and I just have to believe he has it. Here we are 2,000 years later, reading his words, and his words are encouraging us so that we may have joy. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking in chapter 2. So open your Bibles up to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to just dig into this text together. How do we possess joy like Paul? This is the question. How do we get it? What does this road look like? We're going to look at two major principles this morning that I believe will clearly define where Paul finds joy and where we can find it. The first one is this. The love and care of Christ are the guardrails that keep us on the road to joy. Let me say that again. The love and care of Christ are the guardrails that keep us on the road to joy. Okay? Let's unpack this. Verses 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. If I was going to paraphrase what Paul's trying to say here, if I were to put it in my words, I would say this. Paul's saying to his readers, hey, look, you want to know where my joy comes from? It comes from the encouragement I have experienced in Christ. It comes from the comfort of his love and from those who have shown love to me when I didn't deserve it. It comes when I allow the Holy Spirit to help me. It comes from affection and sympathy that I've received from Christ and from the church. I have experienced all these things. And yes, I have suffered many things for Christ, but I have comfort that far exceeds any discomfort I've had. Paul's been shipwrecked, beaten, and imprisoned. It's a mystery, right? But it's like Paul's telling us, Here's the, here's, the solving, here's, here's the equation here, that joy is found in Christ, the love and care of Christ, right? That's where he finds his comfort. And if there's anything that can make his joy complete, it's hearing that those who he's preached to have the same mind and the same comfort and are experiencing the same things in Christ. So guardrails, love and care of Christ. Do you guys know what the greatest joy to any minister of the gospel is? To anyone who preaches the gospel? It's to hear and find out that those who we preach to are actually experiencing the love and grace of Christ 
so much so that they're giving it away. They're receiving something. They're possessing that joy and comfort from the gospel, and then they're giving it away. It's the greatest joy of any minister to hear that about the people he's ministered to. And here's the thing. Some of you are sitting here right now this morning, and you're already stuck because you haven't received encouragement or love or comfort or help or sympathy or affection that are listed here that Christ has to offer. Maybe the church has done some damage. Maybe they've marred these things for you, and it's tough to lean in here. But Paul doesn't let us off the hook. He says, notice this, in the beginning of these two verses, two words, so if, right? This so if statement pulls us into the mix with Paul. We have to grapple with what he's saying about joy for ourselves. Have you truly experienced encouragement from Christ and comfort from his love. These are the guardrails. Remember our Webster definition, happiness, bliss, delight. These emotions that are evoked by receiving something we have desired, or at the very, very least the prospect of receiving those things. Friends, don't you desire encouragement, love, comfort, help, affection, sympathy? I don't know anyone that would say, no, nah, that stuff isn't for me. Maybe, maybe some of the guys in here, they would say that at face value. They go, all, right, that's, all that stuff's fluffy. But deep down, this is what they're desiring. This is what they're desiring. This is, our, this is the deepest desire of the human heart, is to experience the love and care of Christ. It's just that we don't always point our desire in the right direction. We go and grab for other things to fill that place. So what do we do with this? How do we make sure we're staying in the guardrails of Christ's love and care? Well, first know this. Believer, hear me. If you are in Christ, you can never overrun his guardrails. You are forever kept in his care. And though you may bounce from one side to the other, you can never outrun his love, his grace, or his care for you. He keeps you. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Somebody needs to receive that truth this morning. So you might say, well, that's great. Then I don't have to do anything, right? I can just stay in the guardrails. And no, Paul doesn't let us off the hook here. Yes, it's by grace that you're saved. There's nothing you can do once you're in Christ to get outside of his love and care. But it's by no work of your own. It's a free gift of grace so that we might not boast about it being our own, that we might not work for it. But Paul says we are to also put on these ways of Christ, right? As if we're putting on clothes. We don't leave the house without clothes. This is the language that Paul's talking about. We don't leave, we don't walk out into the world as Christians without putting on Christ. Well, what does that look like? It's the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about a few weeks ago. We put on Christ's love, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his gentleness, his faithfulness. These are the things we clothe ourselves with, with self-control, right? And then we put off the stuff of sin, the stuff that drags us down, the stuff that uh, causes us to bump into those guardrails. We put that off and we put on Christ. We train our bodies, right? Paul gives us this other image of training our bodies, like a boxer 
Boxers don't just swing for the air when they're training. They've got a target. And they're punching that target. Paul gives us that image. That's how we're to train our bodies to be with Christ. So Christian, how are you doing with this? Are you putting these things to practice daily? Is this a daily process for you? Guardrails are great and all, right? But who wants to spend their life constantly bouncing off of them? Wouldn't the drive be way more enjoyable if you're on the road, not slamming into the guardrails, right? But man, are we glad that those guardrails are there keeping us from careening off the cliffs because Lord knows we're all capable of it. Amen? So if Christ's love and care are the guardrails that keep us on the road to joy, then what does this road look like? What is this road made of? What kind of surface are we driving on here? Point number two, humility and serving others is what the road to joy is made of. Say that again. Humility and serving others is what the road to joy is made of. And we're going to see here in these next verses the greatest description of love, humility, and service in all of Scripture. As Paul talks about Christ. Last week, uh, Chase did such a fantastic job uh, talking about Paul's call to suffer, his call to strive together. In fact, it wasn't so much as a call as it was uh, a signpost for our faith, right? It was really challenging. Chase helped us to see that Paul is telling us when our eyes are on the mission of Christ and the work of the Spirit, we will experience suffering. And Chase posed this really challenging question like, Believer, Christian, are you experiencing any kind of suffering? And if not, what does that say about your walk right now with Christ? It's challenging, right? This is where Paul's coming from. And in case we doubt Paul's words, Jesus says this in John 16, 33. He says this to his disciples. I say these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And over in James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Consider it pure joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's more of that joy language attached to suffering. What is this? And again, over in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible, right? Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So yeah, we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. But then he gets us again. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And why? Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you catch that? Hope in Christ. Joy in suffering. No shame. Because why? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Here are those guardrails again, right? The love and care of Christ. 
and us on the road, keeping our eyes fixed on the mission of Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's unpacking for us. This isn't the way of the West, right? It's not the way we, we live in our culture. Our culture tends to do anything we can to avoid the unpleasantries of suffering. Anything we can to get out of having to suffer, right? But this is not the way of Christ. Suffering produces something that seems counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. Paul's saying suffering produces joy. It's a mystery for those who haven't experienced it. You're sitting here this morning going, you sound like a crazy person. Yeah, the Bible even acknowledges this. It says the word of the cross is folly or foolish. The word of the cross, suffering, a horrific death, it's foolish to those who don't believe. But to those who do believe, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. So what's this text have to say about suffering? Right, I'm talking about suffering a lot here. But I think it's because Paul attributes humility and gives us some ways to live out how we might suffer well and experience joy. So verses 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, do you know what the road of joy is made of it's gravel it's pavement it's surface it's the life of Christ the son of God laid down in humility for your eternal salvation and joy this is the road we live our lives on as believers and this is the road that Christ calls us to live for others In these verses, Paul gives us an explicit call to the way of life for those who profess Christ and then backs it up with this ultimate proof that there's no other way to follow him. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, dang, those seven seven words just did me in. Just right there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How about you? I mean, just stop and consider your morning, right? From the time you woke up to the time you're sitting here. How many decisions did you make? And, did, and, and none of those had any form of selfishness or conceit in them? Probably not. It's okay, I'm with you. And he goes on, and he says, In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests. Well, this is helpful. Paul is saying that we don't have to be devoid of everything that makes us who we are, Right? We'll always look to our own interests. That's okay. It's okay to take care of oneself. But it's the second half of this statement, coupled with the first statement, that is a real challenge, isn't it? Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Doing nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a challenge. Paul's showing us what suffering looks like. Christian, how well are you doing with this? Do you stop to think of others' interests? Really? What about those who don't agree with you? What about those who have different political views right now? Different sexual orientations, different socioeconomical backgrounds. Do you stop to think of their interests? It's fairly easy to consider someone else that you like or get along with or can relate to, right? But Paul isn't just asking us to consider them. He doesn't say only the believers and only the people that you share interests with. He simply says, put others' interests above your own. Dang. He got us here, didn't he? We see this in the life of Jesus, too. He associated with all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, did he not? And he loved them well, placing their interests above his own. He listened to them. He lingered with them. He healed them. He spoke tenderly. He showed up to meals with tax collectors, saving a prostitute from being stoned. He's asking us to put others' interests above our own. Man, it's hard for me. Is it hard for you? It's hard for me to do with my best friend. It's hard for me to do with my wife and my kids. Much less those whom I might not have anything in common with. Christian, can you say that you humbly count others more significant than yourselves? What a powerful way to show love to our world, right? We're not doing this well in the walls of our church. It's a problem, right? Let's keep moving. Paul gives us this earth-shattering example of this kind of humility and love in Jesus. So let's keep reading here. He says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now make no mistake, Jesus was not suffering from some sort of amnesia here. He wasn't forgetting that he was God in the flesh. He very much was still God as he came to live as man. Rather, he was intentionally putting aside his power. The God of the universe displays the greatest act of humility in the history of mankind. The one who made all things, who spoke and the planets were formed and perfectly aligned so that this third planet from the sun rotates perfectly, sustains life. This God who breathed the breath into the nostrils of man, who knows every star, who knows every grain of sand like the back of his hand. The one who's never done anything outside of his character. The one and only one who is all-powerful, perfect, and holy humbled himself and became a man. And not this time, not so he could display power, but so that he could come and die. And not just the death of old age or from sickness or disease, but even though he did no wrong, He surrendered to those who accused him of blasphemy. And he willingly went to the cross 
and endured the most painful and humiliating death in the history of all capital punishment. Beaten, stripped naked, nailed to a cross by the very ones he came to save. And we ask, why? Why this way? Why did it have to be this way? Why not just exercise power, right? You're God and man. Like, can you just wave your hand and make all of sin go away? Why, why this death? Because it was the only way to redeem what had been broken from the beginning. This is a back to the garden thing, you guys. The Bible says that through one man's sin, death and brokenness entered for all. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Now lean in here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is Jesus. For as by one man's disobedience in the garden, many were made sinners. And by one man's obedience, Christ on the cross, many will be made righteous. This is why he came to die. This is why Christ came in the form of man and humbled himself in the greatest act of service the world has ever known. This was Christ's great obedience to the Father. We know this verse well. The Father sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to lay down his life for those who sin, to take the punishment that we deserve, to set us free from condemnation and separation from God. You guys, God's kingdom, his eternal plan for creation is for it to flourish without the life-crippling effects of sin. And the only way for this to be accomplished is by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It was through this road of suffering. There's a, a verse over in Hebrews that I love, loved for a long time. It says this, looking to Jesus, this is Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the same question I have about Paul. Like, Jesus, how did you have joy going to the cross. Paul, how do you have joy going to prison? It's because Jesus' eyes were fixed on something eternal. They weren't fixed on his circumstances. He knew that his death would rescue many. So let's read on as we close here. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys, humility and death did not get the final say. Christ was raised. And if he was raised, do you know what that means for the believer? We are raised too. And I think this is what Paul's trying to get at. And he's continuing to drive this home in the rest of his letter to Philippians. That the joy that was set before Christ, and this joy that Paul is keeping in front of us, 
is about Christ and what we have in eternity, raised with him. We are to be like Christ in his suffering so that we may be like him in his glory. We get to share in his victory. Suffering, you guys, is not the end game, right? For those who place their hope and trust in Christ, it's just a passing moment. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's an eternal perspective that helps us find joy. Eternal glory. Let that sink in for a minute. Eternal glory. It's not just a Christian phrase. It's a reality for the believer. It's the key that unlocks joy, you guys. Christ is our joy. Eternal glory with Christ is our joy. But Paul's words should be a bit terrifying for those who don't see what Christ has done. For those who bow their knee to the gods of our current culture, they'll come to realize that these are no gods at all. And they will on that day of Christ's return confess that Jesus is Lord over all. Every living being will bow their knee to the suffering servant who is now highly exalted over all. The question is, will you do it now in joy over all he has done for you? Or will you do it only when he returns and you realize he is who he says he is all along? Friends, the reality is that whether you choose the road of humility and service or not, to follow Christ or not, you will be humbled. That's what the text is saying here. You can count on that. The key to joy now is to realize what Christ has done for you and live for his glory and his eternal purposes. Receiving his free gift of love and care and living on that road of humility and service to others. And why? So that more people can experience the love and care of Christ and the joy of eternal glory. That's why we suffer. And that's why there's joy in suffering. Remember, you can't give away what you don't possess, right? If something just welled up inside of you this morning, if something has been churning in you as we've talked about this, maybe this is a moment that you receive the love of Christ for the first time. And you place yourself in the love and care his guardrails. It's by grace that you'll be saved. It's not by your own works. But the Spirit of God illuminates these truths in our hearts. And so if that's you this morning, open wide the door of your heart and let his love come running in. We look at these guardrails again, right? Or these, these two points again. Guardrails of love and care and the road of humility and service. These are keys to joy. 
I mentioned spring at the beginning. Uh, I'm going to close with one of my favorite verses here. Uh, One of the fascinating things about spring is that seeds go into the ground, and seeds don't have much life in them, do they? At, At appearance, they just look like little grains of sand. You place them in the ground, and eventually they burst forth into a plant or a tree. Jesus' words in John 12, 24 say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you know what it is about grain? You have to crush that headstock to get those seeds to come out. It's got to be crushed. And then that seed falls out, and you can see them in the hands right there. And those are the seeds that go into the ground and produce life. And Jesus was using this verse as a way to show us that we, we don't escape it. This is the life that Jesus calls us to. We serve, we love, and we, we walk out humility for others because it's what he did for us. This is the road to joy. This is the road to eternity. How you doing with that? And this is the kind of church I want to be marked by, right? This is the kind of church that I want people I want people to say Redemption Church is a church full of people who are humble and lay themselves down for others. It would be an amazing reputation to have as we move downtown. This is a church full of people who don't seem to be concerned with themselves. They they seem to be concerned more about putting others' interests and needs ahead of their own to the point where they're willing to suffer. And I can't help but think that would just explode the church, right? People would just be, it's just such a breath of fresh air if we could be a people like that. Uh, I watched a film, I'll close with this, I watched a film over the weekend. Are you guys familiar with the movie Dunkirk? Who's seen that? So World War II story, fantastic story. I told Jeff, I just want to read the text this morning and then roll the film and just like let it explain everything. Um, But there's this powerful image in this story. Um, Just a little bit of background. So you're coming to the close of World War II. You've got British soldiers and French soldiers just marooned and stuck on a beach in France in Dunkirk. And they're desperately trying to get out. And Churchill has just given this address to the nation, one last rally call to stand against Nazi Germany. And they're trying to get these forces out, and they just can't do it. They're being bombarded by all the German military. Bombers just hitting them on the beach. They can't get out. They've sent every vessel to try to pick them up, and the vessels are just being sunk. You know what happens? The people of Britain rally together, and they get in their own boats, and they drive their boats that may fit 10 men, maybe 5 men, maybe 30 men, and they all go. They just pack it up and they say, we're going to go pick up these soldiers. And they face the reality of these German bombers because they know if they can get these soldiers out, there's a hope of victory. It's such a beautiful image. This is what we're supposed to be like, you guys. We don't run from the battle. We face it. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And there's a road to joy in this because we know the victory has already been won. Jesus has won it all, and so it's worth it all. Let's turn our boats 
to shore and go pick up those who are suffering without the love of Christ. Let's go pick them up. Let's drag them out of the water. Let's bring them to the one and the only one who gives life and life abundantly. Amen? Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you how it challenges us every time we read it. It's food, it's water, it's nourishment for our souls. And God, we come humbly this morning, asking you to change us. Make us more like you. Show us what it looks like to have joy in the midst of suffering. And God, for those this morning who are struggling to place their hope in you, I pray that you'd break in, break through, open the eyes of their hearts to see you. And for those facing incredibly difficult circumstances right now, would you give them hope, give them strength, give them joy in the midst. Lift their gaze above life circumstances, above the transient things of this world and to the things that are unseen, the things of glory where Jesus is seated at the right hand of Father and all things are made new. Lift their gaze, give them hope. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you.